Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Jorg Rieger. Dr. Rieger is Distinguished Professor of Theology in the Divinity School at Vanderbilt University, the Cal Turner Chancellor's Chair of Wesleyan Studies, and the Founding Director of the Woodland Cook Program in Religion and Justice. Previously, he was the Windland Cook Endowed Professor of Constructive Theology at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. Jorg received a Ph.D. in Religion and Ethics from Duke University. He's authored and edited about 24 books and more than 165 academic articles. Rieger's work brings together the study of theology and of the movements for liberation and justice that mark our age. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, Theology in the Capitalocene, Ecology, Identity, Class, and Solidarity. In this episode, we explore how riding a motorcycle has been a spiritual discipline for him. He explains what he means by the capitalocene and what he means by theology. We explore why we're afraid of class and labor relations. We talk about what he refers to as the unite and conquer strategy and why this is unhelpful for working class white people. We explore the difference between privilege and power. We rethink transcendence and eminence. 
We explore how to think about sin from a systemic or structural perspective. He gets into Albert Schweitzer and what he meant by a reverence for life, an ethics that's grounded in that idea. We talk about his book and his mention of Paul Tillich and Friedrich Schleiermacher and their ideas of ultimate concern and absolute dependence and how they need to be rethought for our modern age, wrestling with things like class and labor relations. We talk about what Jorg means by deep solidarity, and I ask him questions about how his project sheds light on things like toxic masculinity. This was a fascinating conversation. Like I said in the discussion, uh, I've been reading the book and having many conversations with my wife. Uh, We've been wrestling with these ideas together. Uh, It's been very, very difficult and very challenging to take some of these ideas in and to contemplate how to actually put them into practice. I, I really think you would benefit from reading this book with a friend, go out and get a cup of coffee, go to a bar, have a couple beers and wrestle with these ideas and try to think about how you might apply them in the world. Guys, I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Reach out to me if you have any questions or if you want to discuss it personally. I'm always up for a good conversation. And as always, continue the conversation. Jorg, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I'm really excited about discussing your wonderful book and having this conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's great. So I, I kind of wanted to start by, by just asking you, could you give the audience just a very brief sketch of kind of who you are and, and what you do professionally? And then from there, we can kind of jump into the book if that works for you. Sure. Uh so I'm a professor of theology at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. So professionally, I would say I'm what people call a constructive theologian or used to be called a systematic theologian. That means uh, we're people that think about the big questions of faith. Um, and we also ask questions about the faith. So it's not just a matter of perpetuating it, but wondering what does it mean? What sense does it make? Uh, you know, what difference does it make? That's one of my big questions. Uh, I, I always ask the question, what difference does it make? I love question, that. And empower those kinds of things are really important. Um, so that's sort of uh, one branch, uh, the main branch, really, of what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, people can check out um, some of my books and some of my writings. 
But I'm also directing the Winland Cook Program for Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And this is a program that deals with matters of ecological justice, environmental justice, but always intersectionally. So we're not saying this is the only thing that matters, but we think about how does economic justice relate to racial justice, gender justice, those kinds of questions? How does ecological justice relate to it all? Um, and uh, we do that really with an eye towards the practical questions, the, mm. not just the big questions, but the everyday questions. Uh, people can find us at uh, on our website, religionandjustice.org. So that's one word, religionandjustice.org. That's the Wendland Cook Program in Religion and Justice. Okay, that's great. Yeah, and I'll make sure to include all of that information in the show notes and I think your personal website as well. If anyone wants to connect, um, they can do that. Uh, yes, that would be yorgrieger.com. Uh, and that's always a little difficult to spell, right? J-O-E-R-G is the first name and then R-I-E-G-E-R is the last name. Um, it's a German name, so if people wonder, uh, I'm originally from Germany. but From, from Germany, then- yeah. Germany, yeah. Spent the past 30 years in the U.S. though, so. Okay. I, I had to ask my wife who took uh, German in high school and college, so how the hell do I say his name? Because I don't want to butcher it. <laughs> and, and she helped me with that, so. <laughs> and So, yeah, it's, it's uh, just think York uh, in English, that pronunciation makes sense. You know, New York, York, something like that. Yes. Uh, tell me how, how you pronounce your first okay, name. Okay, so, so I'm originally from the island of Puerto Rico, and so my middle name is Enrique, and so Kike, Q-U-I-Q-U-E, is kind of like a nickname for that middle name, Enrique. So it's just Kike. I, I, I tell people it's like the letter or like a key that you open the door and the letter K, put them together, Kike. That's a cool name. I Thank love you. It. Everyone always says that, yeah, that they really like it. Um, yeah. Now, okay, so I know you, you're from Germany and um, I know the listeners can't see it because it's just audio at this point, but I'm, I'm drinking an Oktoberfest beer just in honor of you and your roots. I don't know if you drink beer, but there's this great brewery in Houston called St. Arnold's. Uh, I've actually had the brewmaster on the podcast, and uh, I don't know, I just thought I'd get in the spirit of things by, by doing that. That works for me. Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, this is the big fest festival in Munich. And, and of course, lots of German towns have it in October, but it's usually associated with Bavaria in Germany. Okay. Awesome. So, okay, Jörg, before we really go deep into your book, there's one personal question that I had for you that I think connects to the content of your project that that I was hoping you could kind of like start with. And um, I was listening to several podcasts, just trying to get to know you more at a personal level before this episode. And in one episode with, I think it was Trip Fuller on the Homebrewed Christianity uh, podcast, you mentioned that, that you love to ride motorcycles and that it's been a part of your spiritual formation. And I was just hoping you could kind of start with that. What What's your passion about in terms of motorcycles, and how has that been a part of your spirituality? Well, that's that's really a big question. Uh, I mean, <laughs> at a very basic level, you know, I, I just left, love transportation and, mm. uh, you know, going places, traveling around. Um, and I commute on the motorcycle, too. So so for me, being on two wheels is something that's that's just part of what I love to do something that's fun for me. I also ride mountain bikes, you know, bicycles and so on. 
Uh, but on the motorcycle, there's an old saying, and you would appreciate this as a therapist. Uh, the, the old saying among motorcyclists is you never see a motorcycle parked outside of a therapist's office. <laughs> it's true. I don't think I ever have. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, what, what it means, it's sort of a joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's not serious, but it, it's basically saying uh, motorcycling can be therapy, too. You know, mm. it helps sort out certain things. You know, I mean, if I have a bad day at work and that happens once in a while, and I go back on my bike and I ride home, even if the traffic is bad, you know, I, I loosen up a bit. I somehow focus on different things. So, so that's one thing, you know, it's just something that on the one hand demands your full attention because it's, it is dangerous, I have to admit it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, it's probably also, um, you know, next to flying, uh, the thing that, that gives you the most dimensions, you know, when you're traveling, mm going straight down the road, but you're leaning into the curves. You have to watch, uh, you know, basically traffic around you. Uh, but you also are part of the environment in a way that you're not in a car. So you're out there. You have all the smells, <laughs> you know, that's yes. something, thing, you know, you, you travel through the countryside, you can smell the grass that's being mowed, you know, or now in the fall, it's the leaves, you know, or when it gets cold, uh, cold air smells different than hot air. You know, mm. it's weird. And uh, all all these things sort of come together. And and for me, you know, uh, since we're talking about spiritual formation, um, this is oftentimes the time when, uh, you know, songs come through my mind. You know, I, I remember a lot of the church hymns, you know, we used to sing in Germany. And sure. I, I oftentimes sort of recite those in my helmet, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, or, uh, you know, you, sometimes you, you can empty your mind too. So it's, it's mm. all these things and, and, uh, a long trip, then, you know, you can do this for hours and hours that that's also interesting. Sure. Can I ask just one little thing about that? Because I think this connects sort of to your book. I think you might've mentioned that it's also a way for you to stay close to the people. And, and that just seems like such an important thread throughout your work is, you know, labor relations and just the working class and just just people in reality uh that always is the case so so i mean any anywhere i go on the bike there's always somebody who wants to talk you know you can't just you hardly take off your helmet and somebody approaches you and wants to talk about the bike or where have you been or uh so so it it brings you closer to the people just in terms of the transportation uh but then i think it, it also sort of lowers some of the barriers that people would have you know if oh, they I like see that getting out of a big car, you know, or uh, not quite knowing where, you know, <laughs> where you come from. So, so sure. uh, I mean, the barriers are much lower. That That's certainly one thing. Uh, and you always have something to talk about. Mm. You know, it's people have specific questions about the bike or about traveling or why do you do that? You know, that's another question. Sure. Or something. Yeah. yeah, no, that's really good. Okay, so I appreciate you answering that. I, I was just so curious about it. Um, I, I know that in some ways we're, we're going to spend a lot of time kind of digging into your book, Theology and the Capital of Scene. And, and I, I kind of want to start with a two-part question. Can you explain to us what you mean by the capital of scene and then what you mean by theology? Because there's going to be some listeners of this podcast who are atheists, some who are you know not religious at all, some that are very devoutly Catholic or Protestant— and and I think different people have different understandings of theology. So I'm curious if you could kind of give us your definition. Right. So let me start with the capitalist scene. Uh, that one to me is really intriguing. Um, of course, a lot of people may not ever have heard about the term capitalist scene. What it really means is the it's the age of capital. Mm. 
And it relates to other terms that people might have heard before, uh, like the Holocene. You know, this is the geological age, you know, the age of the planet Earth, uh, you know, uh, the time since the Ice Age. Uh, people talk about the Anthropocene also. This is something that's probably more familiar to some of your listeners. Anthropocene meaning this is the geological time and planet Earth when humanity is taking over. So yes. we now almost 8 billion people on the planet and and that has an impact on the planet so, so anthropocene is a term that reminds us that whatever it is that shapes the earth uh, humanity has a huge part of it um, now i like the term capitalocene which i didn't coin it actually comes from some colleagues one of them being uh jason moore a historian okay. uh, they they have talked about the capitalocene basically saying what really shapes the planet now uh, and that's really in everything you know uh, ecology uh, economy uh, anything what really shapes the planet now is not eight billion human beings just sitting next to each other but it's big money uh, and money of course is power and so the point about the capital scene is capital big money shapes everything including the planet itself uh, and of course I'm a theologian, uh, which means somebody who studies religion. And for me, the interesting question is, how does big money and big power shape religion? How does it shape, mm -hmm. you know? So theology here is simply a way of thinking about religion, thinking about God, thinking about these big questions of life. That's the meaning of theology. And so a theologian studying the capitalocene, like myself, would be asking questions like, how does money shape our images of God? Does mm. it shape? I mean, a lot of people might not realize it, but I'm right. saying it shapes our images of God. And we can talk more specifically about how it does that. It shapes the way we live our lives. It shapes our communities. It shapes our faith communities. It shapes basically everything. And so as a theologian, um, what I'm studying is how these big ideas are shaped and what i'm also saying this is the point of constructive theology is um, all of our theological ideas including our ideas of god are always constructed and shaped by something mm. you know I mean, christians would say our ideas are shaped by the bible which i also believe right uh, but uh, it is never just the bible in itself it's the bible in a context that shapes us sure uh, you can read the Bible differently. So, so these are some of the theological questions uh, that I think are not only interesting, but really life and death questions these days, because there's a lot of damage being done in terms of false and wrong theological ideas, uh, bad religious practice that damages people and also damages the planet. Yeah. Wow. Well said. No, I couldn't agree more. You know, and, and when I when I think about the capital scene, I'm not sure who said it, but, but I think I've even heard you allude to this quote in different episodes or different interviews, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. This goes back to one of my teachers uh, 30 years ago uh, when I was a grad student at Duke. It was Frederick Jameson, a literary critic, uh, who used to say it. And I'm not even sure if, if he made it up, but okay. uh, that's where I picked it up. <laughs> uh, it, it struck me as something that uh, up to that point, like 30 years ago, I hadn't thought about it. But it really still strikes me to be true. It's easier for people to think the world going up in flames uh, or something bad happening than capitalism ever ending. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so let me ask you this, and we were sort of even touching on this before we hit the record button. Why do you think 
we have such an aversion to discussions around class and labor relations and, and some, of these thing, some of these things that you've been talking about, both inside religious circles and outside. So um, that's interesting. Uh, when I talk about the capital of scene, let, let me back up here uh, just a second here uh, to say, you know, we're talking about big money. We're talking about how the economy uh, shapes us all the way down. Uh, but this is also very touchy. You know, this is also very personal. And so for people to realize that these things are really shaping them, uh, you know, it's almost like a therapy session when people sort of get in touch with oh, where yeah. it gets. Uh, where the pain is, you know, uh, people shy away from that. So, so maybe that's the first answer to say these these are really existential questions, and in mm. many, ways. Uh, and then of course when you talk about class in America, we have this idea that we're a classless society. You know, we we don't really pay attention to class much, and so most people assume you know America is a middle class country where you have a tremendously large middle class. You have a couple of poor people. You have a couple of rich people. Uh, but other than that, uh, everything is fine. Uh, the truth, of course, is very different, right? Mm. Uh, we have now, and people should know this. Uh, this is not something that's that's hard to figure out. We now have the one percent, uh, and maybe it's the zero point one percent, a tremendously, uh, fantastically wealthy. Uh, class of executives, uh, ruling class, whatever you want to call it, you right. know, wealthy class, power class, uh, and uh, we have large people uh, basically living in poverty. You know, uh, some estimates, you know, 40% of Americans are living in poverty. Um, something like that, you know, it depends on where you draw the poverty line. Uh, but the middle class also realizes that it's not doing as well as it once did. And if mm. we're doing that's great, but uh, we can't hope the same for our children. Our children may not be doing as well. So, so it's those kinds of things that are a bit touchy. Uh, but I'm arguing that if we take that into account, we find something out about ourselves and about the world uh, that might be touchy, but that might actually help us find solutions to some of our problems. So, so the point then being, uh, even for a theologian, those questions are not optional, but they might get us a little deeper into understanding who we are, who God is, what the world is like. Yes. You know, even though I, I, I work with a lot of uh, clients who would say they're not religious, they, they sometimes laugh because there is one theologian that I'll bring up all the time, and that's Paul Tillich and his idea of, of ultimate concern. And, and so I was so excited that you kind of brought him up and, and sort of used that phrase of, of our ultimate concern as humans but you put your own little spin on it, you know, around uh, productive and reproductive labor. I just thought that was so good. So I was hoping you could maybe talk about that. So that really gets us to the core, right? So why do we talk about the capitalist scene? Well, uh, it shapes us all to the core. Why do we talk about class and labor? Well, uh, it affects us, uh, even though we don't want to admit it. Mm. Uh, so once you sort of dig a little bit deeper uh, now, why would we talk about that as theologians, as people who reflect on faith in the religious scholars? Um, and here, uh, Paul Tillich, I think, uh, this is a theologian, by the way, uh, that's been with me for, for really uh, about 40 years now. Okay. So I've, I've studied Tillich backwards and forward, came across him uh, 
in Germany when I was a theology student there and have studied him for a long time. Paul Tillich basically says the heart of religion is what he calls the ultimate concern. Uh, for German speakers, uh, the German term is das, was mich unbedingt angeht. So Tillich was German-American and sort of he thought in both languages. So the nice. ultimate concern at the very core of everything. Uh, and uh, he says that's the subject of theology, the okay. ultimate and then he says um, only questions regarding being and not being are questions of ultimate concern. So not just anything. You know, there's a lot of things that concern us, important things too. But Tillich says it has to be questions of being and non-being that are this ultimate concern. And then for Tillich, um, he basically says this has to do with existential philosophy things, you know, like questions of meaning or meaninglessness, anxiety, despair, uh, which I agree are crucial questions. Uh, but what Tillich is not talking about, and this is my push here, is uh, what is really at the core of being and not being right. for human. Uh, and if you think about it, the labor term comes to mind uh, because none of us would be here without labor. And then, of course, I expand and say it's reproductive labor. This is usually what we think of women's labor. You know, um, it goes all the way to sure. gestational labor, right? The labor uh, your mother did uh, for nine months, uh, my mother did for nine months uh, to bring us, birth us into this earth. Uh, this is the foundational labor. We would not be here with us without this. That would only be not being. But, uh, you know, uh, even apart from, from these very clear examples uh, in the pandemic, in the COVID-19 pandemic, we learned uh, we're now talking about essential workers. Uh, so what is essential about workers? Well, we wouldn't be here without uh, farm workers and field hands and grocery workers uh, and people that basically keep the lights on. Yes. Uh, so we, we now realize the existential concern of labor. Uh, it's just we haven't taken it seriously yet. You know, people sort of are happy that they're existential, uh, sorry, they're essential workers. Uh, but it doesn't reflect in people's paychecks. You know, mm. it's funny. All them essential workers, uh, yet they're some a lot of them are making minimum wage or, or thereabouts. Right, and bar barely scraping by. I, I also love that you connected uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher's idea of absolute dependence, L less from kind of that big existential realm and, and more into this idea that we're dependent, all of us, on essential workers and the working class and, and some of the things that you write about in the book. Uh, you know, let, let me back that up. Real, This is really crucial. So, sure. so uh Quickly about Tilly again. So the ultimate concern, then uh, that's the, that's the focus of religion. And I'm saying, you know, this is something uh, we should take more seriously, thinking about work and labor. Uh, for Tilly, of course, this is also where we find God. So that's the next question, right? What what does God have to do with that? Schleiermacher, uh, in some ways, you know, is <laughs> you could say he's a predecessor of Tilly, a 19th century German theologian. Um, who, you know, at the time of the Enlightenment uh, was rethinking what, what theology is all about. And he says, uh, you know, there's many things that we're dependent on. Uh, again, you know, there's a lot of things that we're really dependent on for sure. Right. But he said, there's only one thing that we're absolutely dependent on. He says, you know, once you go down the list of what you're dependent on, the only thing that you're absolutely dependent on, uh, Schleimar says, is God. Um 
And so for him, this is sort of almost like a proof of God in a world that has lost faith. Uh, and I think this is really interesting. You know, he, of course, also finds God uh, in the in nature, in the world, in people and all of that. But it's always tied to this absolute dependence. What I'm saying is uh, take this labor question more seriously and you realize that you're in fact <laughs> absolutely dependent on, again, this labor that we're talking about. Schleimacher didn't realize that. He took that for granted. You know, he thought, well, you know, these these guys in the 19th century, they had their servants, you know, they had all kinds of things doing menial labor, the the butcher, the baker and all of that. Uh, they never realized that this might have something to do with their images of God. But, wow. but that's what we're seeing. And that's, to me, the interesting thing of the work. Mm, well, that's really good. Okay, so in light of that, there's this line from your book that you wrote that that I loved. I, I tweeted it, I think, several times because it was so powerful, and I was hoping you could maybe kind of riff on it, and, and I think it really connects with what you were saying. Uh, you, you write, transcendence is not the otherworldly or the supernatural, but the alternative imminence that totally reshapes dominant imminence. And I think there's a lot there. Uh, what, 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 what could you give us to help us understand that? Uh, yeah, a little bit of background there. So, um, I mean, there's a long history of theology you already talked about Schleimacher in the 19th century. Then we talked about Tillich. Uh, those two theologians are oftentimes seen as theologians of culture because mm. they find God also in the culture. They find God in the world. They find God in, in religion and those kinds of things. Um, there was another school of theology, you know, that's usually combined uh, with names like Karl Barth, you know, and, and some other complicated names. Sure. Like both. the neo-Orthodox kind of movement? Neo-Orthodox and then dialectical theology. You know, there was a guy by the name of Friedrich Gogarten, a uh, very complicated name. <laughs> name too. So all these names, uh, you know, people can Google if they like. Uh, but what the dialectical theologians and, you know, also sort of in some ways the neo-orthodox theologians figured out was there's a danger when you confuse God and humanity. You know, there's a danger when you sort of bring God too closely into the human. And so they talked about God as other. They talked about God as, as being different. Um, and so for them, uh, in other words, uh, what they did, they emphasized transcendence. This is how it relates to your question. So, so sure. they were saying, you know, uh, don't be so sure that imminence uh, is where it's all at. Uh, you cannot forget transcendence. Uh, now, for a lot of theologians, uh, people in my field, uh, I mean, even even professional theologians, uh, this is where it's left off. You know, the assumption one is imminence, that's humanity. One is transcendence, that's God who is far away. Uh, but there is something else uh, that I think is really cool and that me, And this is how some of these theologians like Bart were actually talking about transcendence, not as God far away from humanity, but God located in immanence, just in a surprising place. Oh, you know, I like that. So, so immanence, you know, there's sort of a liberal emphasis on immanence uh, that has its right. This is a fine theological move. The problem with it is usually uh, it assumes immanence is the dominant form of immanence. What Bart was saying is, if you're looking for God's transcendence, uh, don't look up to the sky. Uh, look into the manger. Look, look to Jesus. You know, look to the birth, the birth of Jesus uh, in in these lowly conditions. That's where you find God's transcendence. Oh, so, I love so that. It's not God up in the heavens, but God actually in specific places in this world. Uh, but it's not imminence in general. Uh, it is imminence 
in, in this alternative way in being in places where you least expect it, mm. being alternative sites. Uh, and so what I'm saying here uh, also in this book is that I really agree that we have to think about God's transcendence, but don't think about it as otherworldly away from this world. Think about it in specific locations of pressure or struggle. Um, and then, of course, here we're talking about class, labor, uh, ecology, economics. Uh, you can do the same thing in therapy. You know, uh, what if you looked at God uh, in terms of the places where the tensions are, you know, in terms of the places where the suffering is rather than on the mountaintops? And I mean, I know a lot of therapists are doing that. That's the work of therapy. Yes. But it's usually not put together with these images of God. The idea is we look for God on the top uh, and then we go, we dig down into the suffering uh, in order to get out of it uh, instead of um, in order maybe to reorient ourselves and to reshape this imminence. That's the point. You know, I'm not so much interested in imminence. I'm interested in alternatives to the dominant imminence. That's where we are. Yeah, because something I think I really got from you was I think sometimes talk about imminence gets confused or, or just gets reduced to kind of status quo. And, and that can be so problematic. So it, it happens all the time. And uh, I mean, just test yourself or, I mean, I test myself. Sure. You know, it's not pointing fingers to other people. Uh, you know, when, when somebody says God is right here or, you know, sort of in a nice uh, liberal, uh, I mean, the conservatives do it too, right? Sure. They basically assume that God is on their side. So it's not, <laughs> yeah. Think about God as other. Uh, they think about God as looking like certain presidents uh, of reason, <laughs> that sort of thing, uh, and and that's just as dangerous. You know, mm. you basically confuse the dominant sides of imminence, uh, and and in some ways it's also logical because people try to find God where they think the real thing is. You know, right? What we're saying though is maybe the real thing is not on the side of the dominant powers, but on the side of the alternative. Yes, yes. Okay, so since we're kind of hovering around theological realities, which I love, um, I, I know I wanted to get into kind of the the reality of sin, which, you know, again, there's some people I work with that wouldn't have any idea of what that even means, you know, that there's so many different theories out there, but I'm curious how you think about sin in light of your project. That's a huge term, yes. Uh, and, and again, you know, in this liberal conservative uh, climate, and of course, uh, you know, that happens in theology. In culture, we call it the culture wars. Oh, right. Uh, actually, there's two sides to it, right? Sort of the, the conservative side uh, supposedly says, well, sin is really, really bad. You know, you're a horrible person. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> um, yes. And then the liberal say, oh, well, don't worry about sin so much. Everybody's basically good. We're all nice people. Uh, and, and so it's sort of this ping pong between the liberals and the conservatives. Right. Uh, on neither side are you getting a very substantial notion of sin. Because in the conservative camp, you know, the conservative religious camp, uh, you have to sin. But all you do is you say a little sinner's prayer. Right. Dear God, I'm a sinner. Please come into my life. Forgive me. Uh, and it's all taken care of. Right. Uh, not much of a trick there, you know, that's sort of an easy way to deal with sin. And then and then you can point fingers at others, you know, say, well, they're sinners and I'm cleansed by Jesus's blood. That's not a substantial notion of sin. Um, and on the liberal side, you know, uh, to assume that basically sin doesn't matter is also this American dream as if we could all pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Right. Oh, that's good. The 
the reality is that uh, nobody can pull themselves off by their own bootstraps. And the ones who claim they have done it, uh, they're not honest. Uh, they're not telling the truth. You know, they're they're telling us some something else that maybe they believe or they want others to believe about themselves. Right. I so, always say, you know, some people don't even have fucking boots. How are they supposed to, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no boots, no bootstraps uh, or, or anything. And, and even, you know, uh, it's, it's impossible uh, basically to – to, uh, I mean, you know, think about the billionaires in this society. Uh, it is simply not possible to work a billion times harder than anybody else. Right. I mean, I have no idea how that's supposed to happen. Uh, yet, you know, uh, people sort of claim it. Um, this is all examples where I think a, a deeper, a stronger notion of sin might actually be helpful because it helps us get in touch with reality. Mm helps us get in touch with the fact uh, that our lives are not perfect. It helps us get in touch with the fact uh, that we're probably not as successful as we want to be, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, I have not a whole lot to complain about. I'm a professor at a prominent university, name chair and all of that. Uh, but even there, you know, why why I, why I am I not the president? Well, uh, the truth <laughs> is there are structures, there are places, uh, and there, there are ways of... of um, dealing with each other uh, that simply um, have to be taken into account. And of course, uh, it, it really gets uh, crucial when you look at problems like racism or mm. sexism, uh, when you look at sort of other kinds of uh, struggles that people are dealing with. And once you do that, uh, then you really have to give yourself an account. What, what's going on, you know? Uh, and the last thing we would want to say is uh, – you know, somebody who's suffering from racism and sexism, we would not want to point fingers and say it's their fault. It, right. it isn't. It's not their fault. You know, the same for class exploitation. Um, usually not the case that poor people are poor because it's their own fault. Uh, by the way, the American dream, the idea that anybody can make it uh, is, is really just a dream because class mobility in the U.S. is actually less than it is in England, uh, which is not wow. a place country that's known for huge class mobility right right <laughs> so the actual class mobility in the u.s uh is low uh and you wonder why that is everybody has to dream to make it to a millionaire uh and it, it just doesn't happen so so this is where sin becomes interesting and what i mean by it is simply structures that try that try to destroy our lives that keep us down that hold us back uh that destroy relationships um, and these structures are bigger than us. So this is not just the bad thing that I do, but these are structures that affect us into which we're born. I mean, mm. as a white, a white baby born into a white supremacist society um, has to do, has to deal eventually with the structure of white racism. Mm. This is not something that you can that you can ignore. And of course, if you ignore it, uh, it gets worse. It doesn't get away. So, so, so sin, uh, in my view, is related to these structures that destroy our lives, that distort us. Uh, now, I'm a theologian, and so I'm actually hopeful that we can deal with it. So, I'm not. It's not the last word. Uh, but if you want to deal with it, you have to know what you're up against. So, sorry for that uh, somewhat long answer. No, I, just I love it. To realize that sin is something. Uh, that's really with us and that we have to wrestle with. Uh, but I believe we can overcome it when we see it. Okay. Yeah, really well said. So, okay, let, let, let me ask you this. Um, several places in your book, you, you write about this unite and conquer strategy that, that, that gets 
played out in the United States? And, and if, if, if you're remembering kind of what you wrote about that, can you, can you kind of give the listeners a sense of what you mean by this unite and conquer strategy and, and why it's not a great strategy and how you think about an alternative? Uh, yes, yeah. Th- thanks for that question. Uh, this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek term I made up, uniting. <laughs> uh, most people probably have heard of divide and conquer. Right. And, and that's, of course, also at the at the at the beginning of, of the history of the United States. Uh, by the way, this is really a great illustration of what I would call the structures of sin. So, so this is not okay. a different, but it's sort of looking at what what does sin really like, look like? So, so dividing conquer here simply means you play people off against each other. Somebody usually that's what the powerful do. You know, that's what the Roman emperors did. You know, they played the Romans off against the Germans uh, or you know whoever else was sure. out there. Uh, in order uh, to stay in power, you know, this group against that group and so on. Um, people would know how to, how to relate with that. Um, uniting conquer is something that's related, but but that functions a little bit differently. Uh, and an example I use in the book, uh, this is actually taken from history. Uh, the historian, uh, African-American historian, Lerone Bennett, hmm. wrote a book, uh, a famous book um, titled Before the Mayflower, and in the book, uh, one of the stories he tells is the story of 17th century sharecropping in, in the state of Virginia, where you had black and white people working together in the field sharecropping. Uh, and, you know, side by side, there were white people, there were black people. Uh, and, then, and then there were some masters. Uh, the masters were white. The masters realized that these sharecroppers uh, were getting a little too close. They realized they had a lot in common, the fact, despite the fact that one uh, group was white, one group was black. Uh, and so, you know, you could say uh, what they did was divide and conquer because they tried to divide um, the sharecroppers. Uh, but the way they did it is what I call unite and conquer. And this is what they did. Uh, they basically played up the factor of race. Mm. In other words, uh, they made it so that the white sharecroppers got a feeling that they had more in common with the white masters than with the black sharecroppers. So uniting here was a, a way of uniting white people, beginnings of white supremacy, if you will. Uh, and, and that was done perhaps by giving these white sharecroppers a few privileges, you know, treat him a little better, not a whole lot better, but just a little better than the black sharecroppers, so that the white sharecroppers then believed uh, they would be on the side of the white masters. Uh, this is exactly how, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump has worked, you know, making white right. work people believe they have more in common with the white billionaire than with black working people, uh, you know, uh, even though they could never imagine uh, living in a place like Mar-a-Lago or, or even entering it. You know, how do you get right. in there? Um, so, so Unite and Conquer here, uh, the consequences, of course, are, are severe. Uh, well, the consequences are you now have divided um, your workers and that you have united them in in terms of a false unity mm. white supremacy is really a false idea that suggests lower class working class white people you have more in common with the white workers than with the black workers uh, and that's false that that's simply deceptive uh, but it, it's it's very active it, it works you know so so then um, what you're conquering in the end uh, of course that's the interesting question of course uniting conquer in terms of white supremacy, you're conquering black people. Everybody knows this. Mm. Uh, but you're also conquering lower class white people. Uh, so the people right. that actually 
think they're benefiting from this are the ones that are in the end not benefiting either. Uh, they'll, they'll still go back to their trailer homes, you know, or to their low paying jobs at huge warehouses uh, or whatever have you, you know. Uh, they just feel better, you know, they think they have the success of a Donald Trump. Yet they don't. So, so what's conquered here, and that's the dangerous thing, is really the masses, not just a few, uh, but it really does not work uh, for the majority. And, and this is true for white supremacy. It's also true really for nationalism, mm. where the idea is that all Americans benefit from American capitalism. Uh, that's nonsense, you know. Right. Uh, benefits from American capitalism is not all Americans, but some people benefit a whole lot more than others. Uh, but it divides and conquers, uh, you know, unites and conquers people again. Americans think we're united. Uh, patriotisms, uh, patriarchy is another one, you know, it mm. unites in thinking um, all men have everything in common with the most powerful men. Well, in reality, of course, that's not true. You know, if you're a working class person, you probably have more in common uh, with your wife uh, or other members of your family uh, or uh, non, <laughs> uh, you know, gender specific people uh, than you have with the male boss. So, so those are a couple of examples. Uh, but this is this is how the structures of sin operate. Then the question is, how do we overcome it? Oh yeah, and 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 I, and I think you've kind of already answered this question, but kind of the follow up one. And I know this is my language and not necessarily yours. I wrote, you know, how are working class white people getting duped because that's what it seems like to me is in light of what you were just saying it's it's almost like they're being tricked into being in this pernicious solidarity with a group they really have nothing in common with and and that's the, that's a long history i mean this is happening today uh but go back to these sharecroppers in 17th century virginia uh well they were duped uh they they thought you know they had more in common with the masters um, they died as sharecroppers. They spent right. their whole life working the fields, you know. Uh, and and this is what I was saying earlier: social mobility. People always think I can make it, or you know, if they can't make it, they think their children can make it. But we know by now that our kids' generations are not going to make it yeah. the way. So it's getting worse. Uh, not only is it sort of uh, leveling out, uh, but uh, the middle class is in trouble. Uh, you know, a lot of people that haven't quite realized it uh, should probably realize uh, that, you know, um, if the market crashes, if jobs get uh, farmed overseas, uh, if people get played off against each other, they're also the ones who are going to be affected by that. So, so, so the real thing here is, you know, it's not just sin as something that's that's bad and that happens to others, but sin is ultimately also what destroys your life. And uh, and once people realize yeah. it, I think uh, they have a very different motivation to fight it. Because uh, right now, you know, we basically think, oh, this is happening to others, uh, and maybe even you know to people overseas in different countries, or certainly not right. in my neighborhood. So, so Jorg, I, I thought one of the most helpful sections of the book, at least for me personally, was your just incredible exploration of the difference between privilege and power. And, and I was hoping you could maybe speak to that, maybe give the listeners a sense of what you mean by privilege and, and what you mean by power and, you know, how they relate to each other and how they're different. You're raising all the good questions, uh, Kiki. This is this is excellent. Yeah, thank thank you so much for for putting this out there. 
and maybe let me say one more thing. You know, these are things I, I've sort of figured out, you know, uh, in, in terms of my academic work. Mm. But for me, it's also something I figured out in, in terms of my everyday life, you know, just okay. trying to make sense of my own life here in the United States and faith communities and all kinds of other settings. Uh, so, so that's the context for it. Uh, now, let's start with... Um, um, privilege. Privilege and power are the two terms. Uh, now, I think by now, uh, most white people have learned that we do have white privilege. Again, let's go back to the question of race sure. and racism. Uh, there is something called white privilege, uh, and oftentimes we don't realize it because uh, you only realize it really when you don't have it. So, so for instance, uh, when I talk to uh, black friends, uh, African-American students, you know, non-white people. Uh, and, and again, this is something that is more and more known, you know, when when they get stopped by the police, mm. um, they usually get treated differently. This is this is my white my white privilege. Uh, and I've gotten stopped on the motorcycle once or twice by the police also. Uh, but usually we have a nice conversation and uh, it's civil and uh, and everything is fine. Um, that's not the case for for a lot of other people. So right. so white which is basically assuming uh, that, you know, what the privileges you're enjoying are natural. Or, you know, when uh, my Latinx students uh, often report walking into a store, you know, they get looked at funny or treated differently and all of that. Uh, white people don't have to worry about that for the most part, at least if they're wearing uh, shirts and shoes, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, um, I mean, seriously here, though, uh, what, what happens is uh, privilege is something um, – that is part of our lives and that we're oftentimes not uh, not aware of. However, uh, once people become aware of their privilege, they oftentimes confuse privilege and power. And so the assumption is that because I have white privilege, which I do, uh, I also have power that goes with it. Um, and so, uh, you know, oftentimes when white people then figure out uh, their white privilege, um, you know, they say, well, we have to fight racism and they assume we have this white privilege. Uh, and this gives us the power uh, to simply abandon or do away with racism. Uh, right. That easy, you know, uh, people think, well, if I speak out in a loud voice and I say this is bad, uh, everybody will stop. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. I wish, but yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the big mis misconception, you know, especially of people in my profession, professors, mm. uh, also pastors, you know, they think, well, uh, me, my white privilege and all my titles and the books that I wrote give me the right uh, to speak in a loud voice uh, and I can change the world uh, by just speaking truth to power. Well, the problem is uh, if I do that, uh, at the end I may well have the truth, but they still have the power. And so confusing privilege and power, I think, leads to a lot of disappointment because privileged people don't necessarily have a lot of power to change things. And so uh, even if they try it, even when they try it, uh, it doesn't happen. And so they are disappointed. And of course, the people that hope they would have some power, you know, say a minority colleague that might think as a white person, I have this privilege, I can speak up. Uh, I speak up and nothing happens. Right. Uh, what, what that means really is I want people to realize that privilege does not automatically translate into power. And once that is clear, I think uh, we've really passed the hurdle and we, th we can think totally differently about how do we address things like 
structural injustices, the kinds of sins that we're talking about and so on. That's sort of the reason to make that distinction, not to lament the fact that we don't have any power, but to help people to wake up and to say, we have privilege, we may not have as much power, what do we do? Mm. Uh, thank you different way of using your privilege on the one hand, and it gives you a different way of organizing for power. That's what we need. Oh, so well said. Okay. How about, how about this one? So one of the things that really resonated with me about your book and, and just all these interviews that I've listened, um, that you've, that you've conducted and, and just right now your, your, your spirit is, is so kind and thoughtful I, I really enjoyed that you did not go the moralistic route that, that, you know, to kind of address all these things, we have to kind of rail against people and, and, and be kind of moralistic about it. Cause I, I don't think that really works, but you do emphasize the importance of like a deep solidarity. And, and I was hoping you could kind of speak to that, what, what you mean by deep solidarity and, and how we can think about that. So, so this is really all connected, right? Uh, once you realize uh, you don't have the power to change the world, and this is really true for the 99%. I mean, there are some 1%ers, there are some 0.1%ers sure. have a kind of power that is very hard for us to imagine. Mm. Uh, speaking from a fairly privileged position, uh, I'm just realizing my power, uh, even in a large university, is fairly limited. But once you realize that, uh, it puts you in a different relationship with other people because mm. you realize that if you really want to change something uh, you need to be in solidarity with them uh, now the reason you want to be in solidarity of course is because you want to change something uh, but this is a different solidarity where you're realizing um, not so much uh, I mean you, know, you talked about the, the moralistic approach uh, this is what often happens people say you should be in solidarity you should love your neighbor as yourself and all of that uh, and then you have some people that really try very very hard uh, there are some great examples of people who do that all the time who follow these moral rules um, except uh, for the most part uh, and that applies to a lot of my former students uh, they burn out after a while right. you cannot in it you, you cannot simply you know keep going and going uh, just uh, because somebody gave you a command or because of moral ideals so, sure. so the solidarity thing is uh, what keeps you going in community this is not so much you must do this uh, but it's figuring out where are these structures how are they stacked against us and how do we organize together in such a way that, that we can make a difference? So, so that the engine, the motor then is no longer all this moralism and moral suasion. And uh, somebody tells you, you must do this, you must do that. We must do more is something that I hear in liberal circles a lot. Uh, well, uh, so far it hasn't really necessarily uh, led to a whole lot more. And so my question is, um, what would happen if people realized uh, that we're not winning this game and that we have something in common? So, so that's sort of the beginning of solidarity. Uh, St. Paul, I think, got it right when he talked about the church as the body of Christ. First, First Corinthians 12, at the end there, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. I love that. So, so solidarity here is built on this common suffering, on this common struggle. And I'm not saying that everybody is experiencing exactly the same 
oppression and exploitation. But if you look at your own, uh, if you look at the fact that so many of us are not winning in the system, the majority is not benefiting from this. This is not like uh, most people are benefiting. There are a few people who are not, but the majority is not benefiting. Once you realize that you have um, a link that welds you together with other people that, that can be surprisingly strong and powerful. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. I, I, I love that, that kind of allusion to St. Paul. And, um, I, I've, I've become kind of interested in, in some of the stoic philosophers and Marcus Aurelius has a lot of different images that are very similar where, you know, the limbs are connected to the body and, and we, we have to kind of see ourselves as, yeah, intimately connected to everything, which, which I think is so important to maintain. Uh, let me pick that up though, uh, because I, I want to push you uh, a little bit on this one. Please. Uh, so, so uh, I think in Paul, I mean, of course, uh, Paul is um, picking up some of these images that are already out there in, in Roman philosophy, in the Roman Empire, Roman thinking. Uh, but there's a dominant way of thinking about organic relation, and then there's a subaltern way, you know, what you might call it. And the dominant way usually says, well, we're all organically connected, and the, the head needs the feet and all of that stuff. Uh, and Paul says, you know, uh, he basically turns it around and he says, the hand cannot say, uh, what, what is it? The head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. You know, Got you. say to the hand, I have no need of you. Uh, because this is what happens all the time, sort of in, in the empire context. And then, you know, you have maybe a little bit more organic idea where uh, the top realizes they have a need of the bottom, but the bottom stays in place. You know, mm. the bottom becomes sort of, uh, you know, more powerful in the body. And, and what we're going for, this is the solidarity thing that I'm talking about, uh, you know, rethinking what we have, um, how we're connected from the bottom up. So uh, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Um, that's what, what actually brings us together into action. And that's what reshuffles some of these power relationships in the body. Mm, yeah. No, okay. I, I can see your distinction. And, and I think you're making, I, I agree with you. I, I think I have to kind of maybe wrestle with what Marcus was saying there. I think it's more of like an empire perspective if I if I see it from that angle. It, it I, sort I think of you're goes right. Back, yeah, yeah, no, it, it goes back to what we were saying about imminence earlier too, you know. There's some real wisdom in seeing God in, in the here and now. I mean, I agree with that. There's some real wisdom in thinking about the body. Uh, but there's a twist, and, and the twist comes when you start analyzing the way power flows. Mm. And normally, assumption is power somehow flows from the top down. Uh, what we're trying to say, uh, power actually might flow the other way around. And this is, of course, for theologians uh, in Christianity, uh, one way to look at this is to look at, you know, um, the life and death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, right, uh, flowing from the bottom up. But in the Abrahamic traditions, you know, this includes Judaism and Islam. Uh, you know, if you look at God in the Exodus, uh, it's also bottom up, right? It's the Hebrew slaves uh, versus the Egyptian empire versus the Pharaoh. Um, and, uh, you know, out of that, uh, a whole new way of life comes uh let me connect that back just quickly to this class analysis thing, yes, which please. is a bit unusual. Uh, this is a bit uh, of <laughs> what a lot of people find unusual in my work because theologians really don't talk much about class these days. They no, talk they more don't. About, they talk more about gender, sexuality, race, 
which are all important issues uh, as they should talk about. Uh, but when it comes to glass, people don't really uh, know what they're talking about. But um, what we're saying is uh, class is, is a way of talking about relationships beginning uh, by uh, starting uh, with looking at what we're doing at work. And, and there you have fairly clear power differentials at work where uh, not only do does one group have all the power, uh, they also siphon off all the wealth and, and they're basically the ones that benefit from these relationships. Um, but that's a structural thing. This is not talking about evil CEOs or moralizing and saying a couple of greedy people who make life difficult for others. Uh, that's just the way capitalism functions. And if we see that, uh, then we don't need to blame bad people. We simply need to look at how it functions. And then we can look at what the alternatives are. That's the beauty of it. So for us, uh, alternatives would include worker co-ops uh, where you don't need a boss. Mm. You know, uh, even uh, worker organizing, you know, where workers are gaining some power, uh, some voice. You know, this is about democracy. Ultimately, we're great on democracy in the U.S., except in the workplace. In the right? workplace, why, why right. Shouldn't democracy be there at the workplace? <laughs> for that matter. Right. Uh, now, you put all that together and, and all of a sudden you, you see how something starts moving, something starts bubbling up, some solidarity is formed that's cross-racial, that's cross-gender, you know, cross-national, um, cross-ethnic, anything. Okay, yeah. So, okay, uh, Jorg, I, I have a, kind of two more questions for you, if that's okay. I, I want to make sure that that I honor the, the hour mark. Um, the, the, the first one is... You you mentioned Albert Schweitzer in your book and and his idea of the reverence for life, and I was just wondering kind of what you meant by that and how that connects to kind of your vision, your project. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, so so the context of of uh, my mention of Schweitzer is this question of uh, you know what is it that ultimately ties us together? What mm -hmm. is it that brings us together and for theologians, it's it's pretty common to have these big ideas, you know, uh, common humanity, human dignity, and all of that is what connects 8 billion human beings. And I think that's true. I, I'm not denying that. I'm not disputing it. Uh, but um, I also sometimes think these, these grand concepts are not all that helpful because they're great ideas. Uh, and, and it doesn't really change a whole lot necessarily mm. in people lives. So um, what Schweitzer is doing in this context, the idea of reverence for life uh, is, is maybe um, bringing it a little closer down to earth. You know, the fact that, of course, life is threatened is something we have to take very seriously. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the big tasks of theology, I, I often tell my students, is figuring out how uh, theology and religion has become deadly and how it can be life-giving. So it's both uh, but what Schweitzer is talking about is, you know, uh, there's some forces that destroy life and um, that we have to, um, you know, take aim at. We have to be aware of. And what we have to do is sort of not give in to this, but to maintain this basic reverence for life, uh, which ultimately includes maybe more than humanity, not just mm. human, but, you know, <laughs> the life all around us, you know, uh, that the life of the planet. Uh, sure plants, animals, and all of that. Uh, so so that's a great idea. Um, I think it's a little bit more practical than human dignity, and I, I appreciate Schweitzer for that. 
but what I'm saying, actually, uh, you know, it may be even simpler than that. It may be not. Uh, reverence for life still is maybe a bit of a metaphysical context. Uh, what if we thought about what brings us together simply in terms of that which destroys life? Mm. Uh, the, then we have to look at, you know, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. What is it that causes suffering? What is it that ultimately keeps us down? And here I want to have a conversation of how this capitalist scene is keeping down 99% of humanity and uh, 100% of the planet. You know, what, what, what's happening here? That's, that's the point. Uh, so, so it's sort of even deepening a little bit beyond Schweitzer, this notion of reverence for life, uh, by, by looking at what is it that destroys us. And, and that's a conversation that we need to have in, in much more serious fashion. Yes. Because ultimately, you know, we see this now with, you know, uh, some of the climate change um, results that we are experiencing. Uh, this is this is life threatening and, mm. and uh, not at the moral level, but simply at an existential level. If you like it or not, you will be I will be affected by it. Yeah, well said. You know, that, that leads me to, to wonder with you about this question. Um, I think it was one of the sharpest points in your book. I think one of the things that my wife and I struggled with the most as we discussed it together is in light of kind of this progressive ideal of, you know, eliminating dualisms and distinctions, I, I think you're almost wanting us to return to some kind of appropriate, I don't know, I, 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 not us versus them, but but a, a duality around the 1% and the 99, that, that we have to maintain some kind of distinction there. Is, is that getting at what you're writing about, or, or am I missing that? It, it, it is, uh, but but uh, I, I probably need to explain this a bit, uh, and, and don't worry for go, going over time. Oh, okay. I mean, this is such a good conversation. I'm I'm happy to continue. Oh, so, okay, so thank okay. I, I'm, yeah, I have all the time, so I just want to make sure I'm honoring your time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just want to make sure uh, you, you don't get nervous here about the time. I, okay. I, I really want to take a minute uh, to to get into this. Um, sorry, um, I just lost my train of thought. So, so the question was. So the, the question, the question was just kind of setting it up. Um, I, I think in more progressive circles, we we tend oh, to want to not not have yes. dualisms and distinctions sometimes, and 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 you seem to kind of want to hold up a type of duality that's that's important. Um, I mean, at at the basic level, all I'm saying is uh, there's a duality at work if we like it or not. So uh, okay. this is the duality between. Uh, the one percent and the ninety nine percent. I mean, this is simplistic numbers. This is uh, we could be a lot more analytical and and precise here. But but let's just use this as a symbolic frame. You know, where some people are really benefiting from the exploitation of people and the planet, uh, and most others are not. You know, not not really benefiting all that much. So so that's a distinction that's simply out there. You know, this is something that I I'm not welcoming. I'm not saying this is great, but you have to recognize it. Mm. Uh, and and then the question is simply this is a question that the labor unions would always ask what side are you on uh, and the strange thing is that a lot of people in the middle you know this sort of american middle class somehow assumes that uh, they're on the side of the bosses instead of the workers um, now that's a false assumption uh, so here simply figuring out that maybe the bosses don't care as much about you as you think uh, is one thing. Uh, white privilege, of course, fools you there too because they think, you know, because uh, you're white, uh, you, you might have 
a special year of a white boss? Uh, probably not. You know, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, or, or male privilege. You know, a male boss uh, is not necessarily um, bending to a male worker. Uh, you might feel more connected, but that's that's also uh, a misreading. So, so recognizing that you're still on the side of the majority rather than the minority could be very helpful. Now, as you sort of work that out, then um, this is not another uh, good versus evil thing, but this is simply a matter of how do we overcome these mm. these structures? And this is that structural sin again, you know, where some basically build their success on the back of so many others. How do we overcome it? Uh, and there I would say, uh, you know, for Christians, follow the ministry of Jesus. Mm. It's pretty clear that Jesus was taking sides. I mean, Jesus's mom was taking sides in the beginning of <laughs> Luke, right? Yes. She talked about how God lifts up the lowly, and this always preaches well, you know, especially around Christmas time. Sure. God lifting up the lowly, and oh, well, we're all so glad that God's lifting up the lowly. But the God who's lifting up the lowly, Mary says there in, in Luke 1, also pushes the powerful from their thrones. Mm. God who fills the hungry with good things, this is Mary, um, also sends the rich away empty. And so there's sort of this division, you know, I mean, Jesus uh, did Jesus love everybody? Um, well, it, probably yes, yeah. But uh, loving here can include tough love. You know, yeah. he's yelling at some of the power brokers. <laughs> right. Matthew twenty three. You know, the Gospel of John. Uh, he, he's not yelling at all Jewish people in the Gospel of John. He's um, yelling at the power brokers of the time. Mm. Uh, that's that's a big distinction here too. So so uh, we're up against something, and we have to be honest about it. So so that's that's one thing I'm saying. Um, but the reason we're up against and we're taking sides then is not because we hate the one percent. You know, the rich getting sent away empty is not because we now hate rich people. Uh, but seriously, I mean, this may be uh, the only thing that will save the rich. Mm. Being sent mm. away empty once in a while. I mean, as a therapist, you probably can see the wisdom there, right? Oh, yeah. Be good for you. I mean, it might not be the worst thing that ever happened. Absolutely. All that you need. Uh, or, you know, being pushed from your throne. Um, I mean, talking about patri patriarchy here, you know, I, I was raised in Germany. Um at a time when uh, you know male supremacy was still very much accepted, uh, being pushed from that male supremacist throne uh, certainly wasn't the worst thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, you know, uh, so so it's it's this kind of thing. So so you have to see these tensions. You have to take them seriously. You cannot debate them away. You have to fight them, but you don't fight them by sort of making them worse. Uh, you fight them by addressing them. With the goal of of ultimately helping everybody. Oh, I love that. I I, I, I want that to be my approach. Um, so since you, you you talked a little bit about patriarchy and just kind of the dominance of men, you know, this is a podcast where I try to explore issues around masculinity. I know you didn't directly address that in your book necessarily. You, you did talk about gender and intersectionality. What are some of your thoughts on how your project connects with kind of modern, maybe toxic versions of masculinity that we see in our in our culture, but both, you know, manifested in our previous president and then in so many places throughout the world? That is a huge question. I'm, I'm glad you're raising it. Uh, <laughs> and like I said a minute ago, you know, this is uh, something I had to learn along the way. So, um, you know, going back in my own history here, um, you know, I was raised in a fairly traditional Christian household. Uh, my parents were Methodists. 
in Germany that was a little unusual, but still okay. mainline. Uh, and uh, you know the the idea uh, was very clearly you know gender hierarchies and all of that. Um, I got into liberation theology when I was in seminary, uh, not so much just because I, I, I loved reading things, but because I observed a few things that were really wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first thing that I observed in the church was how wrong the male-female relationship was. So uh, my my own uh, way into liberation theologies came through feminist theology. Wow. And it was a great awakening, I mean, for me, reading Feminist theologians, uh, Rosemary Ruther's book, Sexism and God Talk, yeah. was translated into German in the mid-1980s. Um, and a group of us in seminary picked it up and read it. Uh, it was a m major eye-opener. You know, some some males felt, well, this is sort of uh, women being negative about the role of, of, of men. Uh, but I realized early on, you know, uh, this is really about the liberation of all of us. And this toxic masculinity in which I was raised that basically assumed, well, father knows best, you know, or, or some male right. figure uh, could be a male theologian figure, you know, that will basically set you straight and explain things to you. Uh, that is your salvation. Uh, that was one of the first things that went out the door for me. Uh, now, that was, of course, a bit challenging for somebody, uh, you know, a male theologian who could take this male privilege for granted. Mm. But when I realized that this was really just a shame, that it wasn't uh, a privilege that was either earned or built on anything that was real, uh, it, it was easier to let it go. And for me, uh, letting go this helped me, uh, you know, eventually, you know, when I came to the U.S. deal with questions of racism, uh, this is what got me into the questions of uh, analyzing class and class power, uh, not the other way around. So for me, uh, just seeing in a very clear personal context how men and women uh, are related in, in all these problematic ways and how that is damaging, tremendously damaging to women, uh, but in turn also damages the lives of men. Uh, yes. that, that was really a major awakening. Hmm. Wow, man, that's amazing. Okay, so let me, let me ask this. Um, I, I, I kind of like to end with, with this question where I, I, I'd like to know when you look out into the world, you know, your community, is there one thing that's just deeply saddening to you that that is maybe a current source of despair? And then at the same time, as you look out into that same world, that same community, is there something that brings you hope that you're inspired by, that you're encouraged by? Uh, yes. I mean, both of these questions are related uh, to the question of relationship. I mean, we didn't talk much about it here, but... For me, ultimately, everything is relational, and and so I agree with that. I I practice a type of feminist therapy called relational cultural therapy, and and I just couldn't agree more with that foundational truth. So so once you've said that, uh, you know, uh, everything is relational. Uh, of course, you realize that individualism is a lie. Uh, that's bullshit. One the, that's one of the big American lies. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> Uh, because it's basically powerful people telling themselves, you know, uh, I've accomplished this all with my own two hands, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, the person in this culture who is least individual are the people who are claiming to be the greatest individual. So, so, so the billionaire, true. you know, the Jeff Bezos who claims I built Amazon with my own skill uh, is hiding the fact that Amazon was built by hundreds of thousands and millions of people. Mm. Um, so, so the billionaire is actually the one who is most 
connected the, the least individual here in, in what we're talking about. But what makes me sad about this uh, precisely is that um, distortion of relationships or even uh, the failure to recognize these distorted relationships at the core of our existence. And I'm especially sad, this goes back to the labor and the work issue, uh, how distorted our relationships are at work. Mm. Um, because, you know, we, we can talk about democracy all day long and we can talk about the merits uh, and the failures of American political democracy. I'm still proud of democracy in politics. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Uh, there is there is very little democracy in the workplace. Uh, so mm. people that are supposed to live in a democratic society, once they close the factory door behind them, you know, they enter a dictatorship. Uh, right. That's not democratic. So it's not just about money and how much money you make and what, but. Do you have a voice? Do you have respect? Uh, reverence for life, you know, back to Schweitzer. Sure. Is, is life something that actually counts, you know, that anybody cares about? Uh, and I think this is this is really distorted to the max. I mean, I, I talk about class struggle even, um, not because Karl Marx talked about it, but this is the everyday experience. I mean, mm. you talk to a person who checks out your groceries uh, at the grocery store, uh, ask them what they know about class struggle. Um well, they know because they're subject to it, you know, they're yes. pushed against. Uh, and so lives are distorted, uh, and not just individual lives, but families, communities, and, and the ecology because of these distorted relationships. And and that, to me, is really a deep cause for, for sadness. Um, and, and by the way, um, you know, uh, as far as the work of therapy um, goes, uh, I believe that a lot of our, uh, you know, um, Depressions and all of that uh, really come out of that uh, ra that type of basic relationship. We're just not paying attention to it. Absolutely. Somebody who's doing this work, by the way, uh, from a counseling perspective, is my colleague Bruce Rogers Vaughn. Okay. Uh, who wrote a book, Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age. Oh, I love that. I, I wonder if I could ever connect with him. That sounds fascinating. I, I'm sure he would love to connect with you. And I mean, he, he's done that really well. And he's one of the very few people in the country doing his work. But his argument basically is, you know, and I mean, he's a counselor. So he's a professional therapist counselor gotcha. uh, who basically, uh, you know, works with his patients um, through those kinds of disappointments. I mean, usually, you know, we think of family as the cause of, uh, you know, depressions, right. neuroses and all of that, uh, which is certainly true. You know, there's relational counseling, but but people usually don't look at how that shapes up, uh, you know, in, in relation to work relationships, how capitalism shapes us. So 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 that's that's that 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 dark point uh, where, where I'm actually quite concerned that that we're doing a lot of damage. Mm. And then on the flip side, what, what do you see as maybe something that's, you know, like a, a sliver of hope or, or something that, that keeps you motivated to continue to do the beautiful work that you do? Uh, right. So so this is the work that we're trying to do at the Wendland Cook Program for Religion and Justice, uh, where, um, you know, if labor and reproductive labor indeed is part of your ultimate concern, if it is something that really uh, destroys our lives now, um, we're saying, you know, this could also be a place for building alternatives. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is uh, 
there's a tradition uh, that's actually an American tradition that's often forgotten of cooperative businesses okay. or co-ops. Um, there's a, a strong and long tradition in the African-American community. There's a book by Jessica Gordon Nimpart that's titled Collective Courage. She tells mm. the story of African-American co-ops. Um, in Nashville here, we're working with the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development, uh, whose mission it is uh, not only to incubate worker co-ops, but to incubate them in depressed minority contexts. So they're working with women returning from prison. They're working with minority communities. Uh, and, and this is a way not only of building relationships, but this is then a way of fighting racism, fighting sexism. Uh, this is a way of, of really, uh, you know, reshaping, redeveloping spirituality. So mm -hmm. in other words, um, by, by restoring some of these relationships, we're restoring relationships everywhere else. So, so a political, uh, sorry, a, an economic democracy, let's call cooperative work, economic democracy, strengthens political democracy because mm. Uh, you know, minority communities that now have some economic power can gain some political power, strengthens uh, religious democracy, strengthens uh, personal communal relationships. Uh, and, and the fact that this is happening, so so this is not just happening in Nashville, there are national networks, there are international networks of collaborations, co-ops. Um, I also see some hope in workers organizing. This is not just workers trying to get a better deal, but this is workers saying we need to have better relationships at work. Um, that also gives me hope, uh, not just because it helps people economically, but because it uh, addresses a lot of the things that we're talking about here, all the way to sin. Um, and you know, the, the opposite of sin, of course, here is grace. I see this mm -hmm. as manifestations of God's grace, you know, not to put too fine a point Sure. on it but i think god is at work and, and that's what gives me hope mm. no beautifully said so i know that you know in the near future at some point i want to take my wife to nashville because she's never been and ma maybe we could meet up and, and you could show me around the center because it seems like an amazing place i i would love it yes uh, i mean we're still fairly new we're uh, less than three years in existence uh but we're also the only place of its kind in the country that's and probably amazing. in the world uh, so, so this is something that uh, you know. Um, I really would encourage your readers uh, or your listeners to check out. Also, okay. religionandjustice.org is the website. One word: religion and justice. And uh, it, this is a way of really bringing together all the concerns that we're talking about. Uh, of course, it has to do with faith, uh, and not just Christianity necessarily. It could be other faiths as well. It has to do with politics, it has to do with economics, and, and most importantly, it has to do with relationships. How do we reshape mm -hmm. relationships? Uh, currently, we're having a webinar series uh, every Monday night uh, for the next four weeks uh, that is on, on reproductive justice and mm -hmm. economic justice, because that's another big relational issue that a lot of people think affects some women, uh, but it really affects us all uh, guys right. as well. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, and the whole of society. And uh, without addressing these things, I think uh, we cannot move forward together. Yeah, well said. Okay, so Jorg, would you mind just ending with the line of the podcast, which, with, which is just continue the conversation just by saying that? Continue the conversation. Yes, I'm all for it. That's That's what we need to do. Let's continue that conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much.
Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at qiqueautrey.com or you can Google my name, Kike Autry, on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, katieteenandfamilycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation.